you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans 16. That's the very last chapter of the book of Romans. And when we get there, we're going to start toward the end of the chapter, actually, at verse 17. Romans 16, starting in verse 17. This is Paul, the apostle, speaking here to the church at Rome, and of course, by the Holy Spirit to us as well. Romans 16, starting in 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, you might agree with me that verse 20 uh, is a strange one. It is, it's um, a funny verse to see, partly because of where it occurs there. Right here at the very end of Romans, so Paul's already done all of his personal greetings and all that that he has at the end of most of his letters, and so he's, he, you think he's kind of winding down, and then all of a sudden he puts this other paragraph in here that is climaxed by this super powerful verse about God crushing Satan. Where did that come from all of a sudden? Shouldn't that be somewhere else in the book? And then beyond that, there are a couple surprises in the verse itself. Isn't it interesting that Satan will be crushed under our feet? Isn't that kind of a provocative statement there? And then beyond that, why in the world is Paul calling God the God of peace in this verse? Have you thought about that? This is a verse that sounds like it's about warfare and, and rough stuff going on here. It, this is a spiritual warfare verse. Why is God the God of peace? in this verse. Why not God our fortress or, you know, the Lord of hosts or, or something like that? What does peace have to do with it? About a hundred years ago, a Swedish theologian by the name of Gustav Aulen published what eventually became a very influential book. The book was entitled Christus Victor, Christus Victor, which just means Christ the Victor. And in this book, Alan hearkened back to the writings of many of the early church fathers, so many of the church leaders that were around back in the 100s, 200s, and 300s in the early days of the church. And these guys typically understood the work of Christ on the cross primarily in terms of defeating Satan and destroying his kingdom. So by defeating the evil powers that oppose God, Jesus Christ, by going to the cross set us free, set his people free from captivity to Satan and established himself at the same time as the rightful king of the universe. You can say amen because that's a good thing to believe, okay? This, this view of the cross does not at all contradict what we've been saying about the heart of the gospel, Jesus dying in our place to satisfy the demands of a holy God. But it does put more of an emphasis on Jesus, not merely as Savior, but also as victor, as king, as, as the one who wins the ultimate battle of good and evil forever. And it highlights the conflict, the spiritual warfare that is going on behind the scenes all the time, not merely 2,000 years ago on Calvary, but also today in our world and in our hearts and in our lives as we do battle today 
with the forces of evil. We're going to talk about that slightly more personal part a little bit later. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever played chess um, or who, many who like chess. I mean, I'm not, I know how to play it. I've played it some. I'm not into it myself because um, I don't have the patience for it. But uh, my older son, who you've heard a little bit about today, who is maybe even a little bit nerdier than I am. Um, actually, he's a lot nerdier than I am. But anyway, um, he's, he's, and I'm, I'm pretty nerdy, but he's really, he's really into chess. He will watch chess. He's gotten very good at it. He'll watch it on the internet. And like most of you, he has been following the World Chess Championships this year, which I did, you of course realize that those just finished up last Sunday afternoon. Um, yeah, they did. Um, but and it was really close, and it was really exciting for chess people. Um, but, but if you ever watch a chess match, okay, if you ever watch people playing chess, or even if you watch a chess match, say, on the internet or something like that, it's different than watching a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game, largely because when you watch a regular sport or a regular game, at whom are you looking? The players, right? You're watching LeBron James and Steph Curry, or you're watching Tom Brady, or you're watching... You know, um, who's a baseball player? I don't watch baseball anymore. Huh? Bryce Harper. Is he still playing? Okay, good. I'm glad. Anyway, you're watching the players. When you watch chess, what are you looking at? The board. Yeah, you're not looking at the players. You're actually watching at the board because that's where all of the action is taking place. But all the time, in the back of your mind, you know that the real action is taking place not on the board... But where? In, in the brains of the players who are usually out of the picture. So the real contest is happening behind the scenes in a place that you really can't see, but you know it's happening. And you know that every move of the game that you see represents the will, the choice, the strategy, the scheming of the opposing players who are the real power behind what's going on. And it is possible to look at all of human history as a chess match between God and and Satan. And if that's the case, then what is the board? The board is, is it's this world, right? It's the world of humans. It's our lives. It's, it's us. The history of the human race is the arena in which this great chess match takes place between good and evil, between God and Satan. But the battle, although we see what's happening in the world, the battle's really being fought in the heavens at that level. And when you get, when you start reading through the Bible and you get to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind into sin in the Garden of Eden, it certainly looks like Satan takes the first game of the match, right? Because no sooner is mankind created than Satan succeeds in capturing us, in deceiving us into doing his will and joining his team and enslaving us to our sinful passions and to a miserable existence that is separated from the light and the life of God. So it looks like one point for Satan there. And you know, Satan in that garden did something very clever. He did something extremely clever. He took God's holiness that we sang about this morning, that great aspect and characteristic of God, His holiness. He took God's holiness and He used it against Him. Once we were compromised by sin, God, who is holy and who is just, could never accept us. He could never pour out His love on us without reservation like He wanted to. He could never fulfill His original plan to elevate us to a place of honor and authority and privilege in His everlasting kingdom. He couldn't do that because to do so would violate His holiness because now we were corrupt. We were unholy. In fact, now we were actually in the enemy's camp. 
But if you look back at that verse today, the really the only half verse, the beginning of verse 20 of Romans 16, you might notice a pretty clear reference there to the very first prophecy recorded in the whole Bible, which is in Genesis 3, verse 15. In that verse, God assures Satan that he, Satan, will not win the contest. He tells the serpent that his head will ultimately be crushed, just like we read here in Romans 16, and that this will be accomplished by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. In other words, God is saying this, your defeat, Satan, will ultimately come at the hands of a human being, just like these human beings that you just deceived. Satan, there's going to be another Adam, and this one's going to take you down. And after that happens, humanity will be set free to receive my eternal blessing and my eternal favor and accomplish all that I designed them for in the first place. That's going to happen. God is laying down the gauntlet and telling Satan what he's going to do before he does it. And so you can think of the whole Old Testament then almost like a series of moves and counter moves where Satan is desperately doing everything he can possibly do to sort of corrupt the seed of the woman, to destroy the people of Israel, especially because those are the people from whom this, this Savior is, is prophesied to come. And he wants to frustrate the plans of God at every turn as God is trying to redeem humanity. But God continues in the face of Satan's attacks and deceitfulness. God continues to step in and save his people time and time again from final destruction as he moves in the hearts and the lives of an ever-shrinking faithful remnant of his people who continue to trust in him as the Old Testament goes on. And then the main event the life of Jesus. By sending His own Son to earth in the form of an authentic human being, the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, God was obviously making His big move. So the first thing Satan tries to do is to murder that baby in the crib. Doesn't succeed. Then he tries to tempt him to sin like he did successfully with Adam. But when that doesn't work, Satan decides he's got to pull out all the stops. And so he throws everything in his arsenal at this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you look at the final week of Jesus' life, what you see is all the pieces are in motion. Satan has managed to corrupt the world's most sophisticated religious system, Judaism and then align it with the world's most powerful political empire in all of history at that time, the Roman Empire. He's brought these two forces together in an effort to bring down Jesus. He's even managed to infiltrate Jesus' inner circle with a secret betrayer. He's got all the pieces in place. So you've got Judas, you've got the Sanhedrin, you've got the Pharisees, you've got King Herod, you've got Pontius Pilate, the soldiers, all of them being mobilized by Satan in what Jesus himself describes in Luke twenty-two fifty-three 53 as the hour when darkness reigns. So it doesn't look good. But then God does the unthinkable. When you're playing chess, sometimes you find it necessary to sacrifice some of your pieces in order to make progress in winning the game you know, against your opponent. So you might, you very frequently will say you'll sacrifice a pawn to move forward or to get another piece. Sometimes you might sacrifice a knight or a bishop, or maybe under very special circumstances, you might even sacrifice your queen, which is the most versatile piece on the board. 
But the one piece that you will never sacrifice is what? Your king. Because if you sacrifice your king, what happens? You lose. What did God do? He sacrificed his king. And for three days, it looked for all the world like he had lost and Satan had won. But that wasn't what was happening. In seeming to lose the war, God was actually winning it, and he was doing it by proving himself to be, as it says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. In the face of all of this horror, in the face of all the devil was throwing at him, our Prince of Peace, Jesus, never fought back. He never called for reinforcements. He never, as the old hymn says, he never called for 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. No. Instead of Jesus resisting all of this evil that Satan was throwing at him, you know what he did? He ran headlong into the teeth of it and he absorbed all of its poison all the way to the point of death. And that's how Satan ended up sealing his own doom. You see, in the death of Jesus... God was not only pouring out His holy wrath on our sin, as we've already learned, but in large measure, He was using Satan and His allies to orchestrate and organize and carry out the whole plan. So just as Satan had once used God's holiness against Him in the Garden of Eden in order to separate Him from the people that He loved, now God was using Satan's own cruelty and treachery against Him as He manipulated the devil into putting Jesus into exactly the place where he could pay for our sins, cancel our debt, set us free from slavery to sin, cancel out the hold that Satan once had on us, and bring us back to himself. Or as Colossians 2 puts it, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. And once this was accomplished, three days later, Satan learned, if he hadn't figured it out already, that throughout all of his scheming, throughout all of his activity, throughout all of this planning, God was actually controlling every piece on the board the whole time. Because three days later, the king returned to the board. And now his enemies were powerless to stop him. All authority on heaven and earth is now given to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Check mate. Now, that's one way to tell the story of Christus Victor. There are other ways. Christ the Victor. But what does that mean for you and me today? What does that mean for us? Just four takeaways for you today. The first one's probably the most important in a way. If you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... You are free. You're free. You've been set free. You are no longer a slave to Satan because you are no longer part of his domain. You're no longer on his team. Again, from Colossians, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. So when Satan says jump, you no longer have to say how high. You used to have to say that, but not anymore. Or when Satan uses the the systems and the spirit of this world to tell you to jump. Or most often, by the way, when he stirs up your old sinful nature to tell you to jump. 
you don't have to listen anymore. You can sing him that old song from 1963. You don't own me. Right? Because he doesn't. You can tell him that. Every time as a Christian you are tempted to sin, every time for that matter, every time you're tempted to give up or give in in the face of some trial, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells you that every temptation that you ever face comes with an attachment that is built onto it by God. You know what that's called? A way out. Everyone comes with, it comes with the temptation. It's part of it. So you can never really say the devil made me do it, can you, Christian? You might could say the devil sort of influenced me to do it, but you can't say the devil made you do it. Satan cannot control you with guilt because all your sins have been forgiven. Satan cannot control you with discouragement because your hope is sure. Satan cannot control you with pain and suffering because all this is doing is working eternal glory for you in heaven. And he cannot control you with lies because you now live in the light and you are no longer afraid of the truth. So now you you can get yourself all tied up in these things. And at times you can even do the will of the devil. And sometimes we do. But you need to know this, that when you do that, when you do the will of the devil now, you're now a freelance volunteer. You're no longer a slave. Takeaway number one is that you've been set free, Christian. You're no longer the slave to sin. For number two, here's what number two is. We need to learn to look at our battles, our battles, from the right perspective. We need to learn to look at our battles, our spiritual battles, from the right perspective. And we're going to need to go into the Old Testament and take a little detour to a few places on this one. There's a really obscure um, Bible story in 1 Samuel 17 that some of you may have heard of. It's called David and Goliath. Anyone? Um, most of us know that story. You know, when we consider that story, when we talk about David and Goliath, we are encouraged to think of David as an example for ourselves, right? Because as we sang in that song this morning, I may not face Goliath, but I've got my own giants. And that's true. It's true enough that we all face giants. We all face problems that are bigger and more complex than we can deal with, and they are way beyond us, and they are usually out of our control. But if we're going to follow David as an example and we can, let's do it in the right way. Let's do it in the right way. And to find out what the right way is to use David as an example, we're going to go back a few more books in the Old Testament and look at one moment from the life of Joshua. So you don't have to turn here. I'm going to tell you the story. It's Joshua chapter 5. Joshua, they're about to, the Joshua is bringing the people into the promised land. Big, tense time. Big war is about to happen, actually. And they're heading into Jericho, and they're, they're going to have this battle that they fight in Jericho. And they don't know how it's going to go. Joshua's kind of walking around alone outside near the city of Jericho. He's sort of, um, you know, getting, getting the, the, you know, kind of figuring out what to do next and getting the lay of the land. And all of a sudden, he comes across a fierce-looking character dressed for battle with a sword in his hand already drawn. So he's got the, he's got the drop on Joshua. Joshua is, could be in trouble here. And so Joshua looks at the man and he asks a very good question. He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man says, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I'm here for a battle. See, this was ultimately God's battle, not Joshua's, not Israel's. It was chiefly God's battle. And so the, more, the most important question that Joshua needed to ask was not, is God on our side, but are we on God's side? 
Are we on God's side? Now, David, to get back to David, David understood this maybe better than anyone ever had before him. Why was David so successful in all of his battles? His future wife, Abigail, nails it right on the head in 1 Samuel 25, 28. She says, he fights the Lord's battles. He fights the Lord's battles. See, David realized that Goliath and the Philistines had declared war, not on Israel, really, but ultimately on God. And what did he say to Goliath before he killed him? He said, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. See, most people look at David and Goliath, and they see the ultimate mismatch, right? David and Goliath. The ultimate mismatch. You know what? That's how David looked at it, too. It was the ultimate mismatch, because on one side, you've got this giant 10-foot-tall guy with a huge sword and a huge spear. And on the other side, you've got God! Talk about a mismatch. Poor Goliath never had a chance. We follow David's example properly, not by ginning up enough faith to walk into dangerous or scary situations or by asking God to guide the rock that we throw at our problem, but by recognizing, as David did, that God has his own battle to fight and the path to victory for us is to make sure we're fighting his battles and not always to be trying to drag him into ours. Because sometimes our battles are God's battles, but sometimes they're not. Now, This does not mean that God is not concerned about your health, about your job, about your family, about your finances, about your relationships, about all those things that, yes, we those are battles for us, and those are sometimes giants for us, and we pray about those things. This doesn't mean that God isn't concerned about those things. But God may have a greater purpose in dealing with them than we do. When when the Israelites, to go even further back in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were, were suffering in slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, did God care about that? Absolutely. He says he had compassion on them. God cared about it a lot. And so their giant was, their, their big request was they wanted to get out of slavery, and God was going to get them out of slavery. Absolutely. He was going to win that battle for them. But you know what? God had his own battles to fight. Why, why didn't he just take the Israelites out in one day? Why didn't he just immediately you know, get them out of there, part the Red Sea, and put them in the promised land. Well, God had a battle to fight against a whole bunch of Egyptian gods. And if you look at those ten plagues, every single one of them was designed to destroy, to embarrass, to show God's superiority superiority over one of those Egyptian gods. They had a god of cattle. They had a god of the river. They had a god of the sun. They had a god of the fields. Even Pharaoh was deemed to be a god the way they thought about him. So God was going to establish his dominance and his superiority over all those other gods, and that was his ultimate battle. As, and he says that over and over again. I'm gonna, I'm decla- this is for the Egyptians, not just for the Israelites. They need to know that their gods are false gods, and I am the real god. And often in our, our battle in prayer as we deal with our problems is, is to get on God's page and to allow for the fact that He may have a greater purpose for the pain or the opposition or even the delay that we're currently experiencing because even though, yes, He does care about our problems, absolutely, His real enemy is probably a false God in your life because He hates false gods. 
And if there is something in your life that you put over him, God is going to want to get rid of that false God. And if there's an issue that you have with pride or with a lack of patience or with greed or with some other, or just maybe just with some really puny ideas that you have about God that have to be corrected, God wants to deal with those, not just with what you asked him about. And so as you pray, are you getting on his page? Are you submitting to that purpose that he might have in your life? As we face our giants, whatever they are, the first step is to submit our agendas to God's will and God's plan and ask him to align our will with his. Because when our will and our agenda gets lined up with his, oh boy, that's where the prayer of faith can really release God's power. That's when we can be confident stepping out and taking risks. That's when the real strongholds come crashing down and when the real giants start to fall. This verse does not say that we are going to crush Satan's head with God's help. It says that God is going to crush Satan under our feet. It's his battle. That's the right perspective. Which leads us back to takeaway number three and back to David and Goliath, actually, because there's another way to understand the David and Goliath story that is much more powerful than what we've just talked about. A lot of us have trouble relating to David. I have trouble relating to David. You probably do too. Why? Because David's, his faith is so pure. It's so strong. It's so childlike. David has this otherworldly, almost unreal confidence in God, and his faith just seems so much larger than life in this story. We're like, we could never be like that. Well, in a way, that's okay, because ultimately, in this concept of David and Goliath, we're not really playing the part of David. You know who we are, really? We're the soldiers cowering behind David shaking in our boots, scared to death of confronting the enemy, until what happens? Until what happens? Until that giant falls and his head rolls, and then did you notice what the armies of Israel do? They're suddenly filled with energy and courage, and they rise up, and they strike down the Philistine army, and they chase them all the way back to the cities they came from. Guess who David is really pointing to prophetically? It's okay, you can give me the Sunday school answer because it's right. It's Jesus. Jesus once said, talking about himself and Satan, he said this, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, ties up the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then he said this, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus has bound the strong man. Jesus has defeated the ultimate giant, Satan, once and for all at the cross, and we are set free not only to stop serving the devil, but to start serving Jesus. And he challenges us here. He says we need to be on his side, gathering with him, as he calls it. What are we gathering? We're gathering people that need Jesus. We're gathering people that have been oppressed by the devil. There is ground out there that has already been claimed by Jesus the victor, where the devil has no authority. And Jesus commands us to go forward and occupy it. That means sharing the gospel with people. It means announcing that they too can be set free from their sin. It means calling on the name of Jesus to heal people from physical infirmities. It means bringing the truth of the Bible into broken relationships where Satan's lies have taken hold. It means praying for the advance of the gospel in the lives of the people that we know and in our neighborhoods and in our county and in the world. It means all these things. You know, the only real danger in using that chess analogy I was using before is that it might give you the idea that we're just pawns, that we're just, you know, passive spectators in the game who don't need to know anything but watch. But that's not true. 
there's a job for us to do. The verse does not say God is going to crush Satan before your eyes. It says God is going to crush Satan under your feet. Okay, last takeaway. There's one word in the Romans verse there that we haven't looked at yet, and it might be the best word for some of you. It's the word soon. Soon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know, a lot of great things happen when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You get forgiveness of your sins. You get adopted by God. You, get, you receive the Holy Spirit. You get a whole new family, the church. But there's something else that happens to you when you become a Christian. I think I was three or four years old, and my father taught me the very first poem that I ever learned. It went like this. It was very simple. It went like this. Oh, how I hate Ohio State. <laughs> we lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And my dad was a resident at the University of Michigan. And, and as was confirmed to me later in life, when you associate with a college and you therefore associate with their athletic teams, you automatically and immediately make some enemies just by virtue of the team that you have signed up with. It's like that in the spiritual realm too, only it's a lot more serious. When you became a Christian, you made an enemy. It's serious. He's the devil. He wasn't all that fond of you to begin with, but now he hates you with a passion because of who lives inside you and because of whose team you're on. And the devil doesn't just stand there quietly and let you plunder his house. He may be defeated. He may be bound in a lot of ways, but, but his, and his doom may be certain, and it is. But he's got a lot of power still and influence on earth because Jesus has not yet thrown him into the abyss. And he is always looking to attack you, if you're a Christian. Now, we may think his attacks often have to do with things like our health or our job or our families or our finances, and he does attack us in those areas. There's no question about that. But if you were paying attention to the first few verses that we read back in Romans 16, starting in verse 17, you heard Paul warn us about some other kinds of attacks that are different than those attacks. What are these attacks? Satan wants to divide us from one another. That's an attack. Satan wants to distance us from God. So he will lie to us. You know, you're plundering his house and he may be bound across the room, but he's still yelling at you and he's still, in fact, whispering some words in your ears about other people getting you to hate them. He will also flatter you and play upon your pride. He will send you false teachers to try to lead you back into sin or to pull you back into a performance mentality and forget about grace or to rack you with guilt or to get you to doubt God's love or God's goodness or God's power. He'll do all those things. And we are given spiritual armor to repel these attacks. You can read about them in Ephesians chapter 6, things like faith, righteousness, salvation, etc. But over and over again, the Bible says something to us about spiritual warfare. You know what it says over and over again? Be alert. Be alert. Pay attention. Open your eyes. Be alert so that you don't fall into temptation. Be alert. Your enemy is prowling around trying to devour people. And here Paul is saying to the Roman Christians, be alert and be on the lookout for all this false teaching. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I find that it's, it's hard to stay alert 
all the time. You know, it's, it's taxing. It's tiring. Don't you look forward to the day when you can be free of all the lies, all of the subtle temptations, all of these issues, all of the wolves in sheep's clothing? Don't you look forward to that day when that all goes away? To these Roman Christians and to us, here's what Paul says. Soon. Soon. Now you can read what you want to into that word because it's been 2,000 years since he wrote it. But one thing is for sure, and Paul says it earlier in the book of Romans, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our warfare will not go on forever. One day we will be able to take off our armor, put down our sword, and enter into a refreshing and everlasting rest. Because Jesus has won the victory, and He is coming back to make all things new. Yes, there is one final tribulation. There is one final season of testing for God's people. But the ultimate outcome is certain. Christus victor. Christ wins. And therefore, so do we. So do we.